Thanks for joining us on episode 1402 of the Inspired Stewardship Podcast. Hi, I'm Scott Ritzheimer, and I want to challenge you to invest in yourself, invest in others, and develop your influence and impact the world by using your time, your talent, and your treasures to live out your calling. Having the ability to not just grow a business, but leave a legacy is key. And one way to be inspired to do that is to listen to this, the Inspired Stewardship Podcast with my friend, Scott Mader. And, and it's in those points of pain. It's one of those things, and you recognize this, there are events that we go through in life that we would never wish for, right? If I had the opportunity to choose it again, I'd be like, oh, I don't think I want that. But we would never give them up either. Welcome and thank you for joining us on the Inspired Stewardship Podcast. If you truly desire to become the person who God wants you to be, then you must learn to use your time, your talent, and your treasures for your true calling. In the Inspired Stewardship Podcast, you will learn to invest in yourself, invest in others, and develop your influence so that you can impact the world. In today's podcast episode, I interview Scott Ritzheimer. I asked Scott about his personal journey that led to him being focused on helping founders grow their businesses. Scott also shares how his faith intersects with his own journey, and I also asked Scott about what founders really need to understand about their own growth. I've got a new book coming out called Inspired Living, Assembling the Puzzle of Your Call by Mastering Your Time, Your Talent, and Your Treasures. You can find out more about it and sign up for getting more information over at inspiredstewardship.com, Inspired Living. That's inspiredstewardship.com, inspired living. Scott has helped start nearly 20,000 new businesses and nonprofits, and with his business partner, started and led their multi-million dollar businesses through an exceptional and extended growth phase over 10 years of double-digit growth, all before he turned 35. He founded Scale Architects to help businesses across the country identify the right growth strategies and find the right guides to get them on the fast track to predictable success and stay there as long as possible. He now travels across the country to speaking to and consulting with founders, CEOs, and their teams to help them not only grow but scale their businesses and do it all without the hustle. Welcome to the show, Scott. Scott, thanks for having me here. I, I always chuckle a little bit when it's like, Scott, it's, yeah. there's this episode of Seinfeld where uh, I think it's Kramer is at the corner of first and first. He's like, this is the nexus of the universe. <laughs> uh, and so, it's, anytime it's, we get two Scots, I get this flashback of Kramer and uh, it's always makes yeah. me chuckle. It, it, I, I always, yeah, I've had it a couple of times now where I've had a Scott on the show and it's always at least I'll remember your name. <laughs> Probably won't screw it up in the middle of the show. But not a guarantee of that. I was we'll, going to we'll say, hope. you say that, but just in case anyone had any noble thoughts of me, which they probably don't, but a friend of my son's, where they were playing soccer, they had played lacrosse together and they were playing soccer together. And the dad came up and recognized me. He's like, hey, Scott, how you doing? I'm like, hey, man. Like, I just could not remember his name. And we had like a 15 minute conversation and I'm trying to remember his name. Nothing. Just crickets. 
And so the end of the conversation, I'm like, remind me of your name again. He goes, it's Scott. <laughs> <laughs> At which point you went, and I feel like an idiot. <laughs> yeah. That's a little different because I can actually see your name in front of me on paper and everything too. So that hopefully that'll keep us from messing it up too bad. I shared a little bit in the intro about some of the things that you've done, your journey, how you're focused on founders and success. But I always tell people, I always feel like intros and bios and all of those things are like Instagram pictures of our life. We always make sure the dirty laundry is not the background of the picture and we frame everything just right. So it looks perfect. Can you share a little bit behind that, that we share in the intro? What's happened in your life? What brought you to this point? What was the journey that you were on that that caused you to be where you are today? Yeah, it is. It's the highlight reel, isn't it? And and there's a place for highlight reels, but there's also a place for what is going on behind the scenes. And and it, it's actually something that as I was processing my own journey and as I was looking over the journey of several numbers of clients and other founders and, and leaders over time, I realized there's a significant chunk of that journey that's not a whole lot of fun, right? The times that, a lot of the times that I remember the most poignantly were the ones that were really hard, like curled up in a fetal position on the stairs crying, right? Because of a, a problem with my co-founder or just the feeling of being stuck. So if we re rewind it to the beginning, one of the most helpful but most difficult times in my kind of career in the business and, and frankly in the nonprofit world as well was the very first year and a half, two years of my career. And, and what had happened was uh, I was in ministry at the time and I was looking for basically a part-time job to pay the bills while I was in ministry because I, I didn't have a ministry income. And, and so got a, a job with a gentleman who again became my business partner and later point, but he brought me on just to work in like the mail room, if you will, right? I was answering support emails and and helping with tech support, things like that. I was definitely the low man on the totem pole. About two months later, he sold the business. He did an owner finance deal, sold the business, and it was taken over by another group that did very similar work out of Nashville. And the new owners, wonderful people, men of faith, just just a, an, a really special commitment to making sure that everyone succeeded. And it failed miserably. It just failed miserably. So I watched over about 18 months, the company that I worked for be systematically but unintentionally destroyed. And I watched it happen when there was no bad guy, right? There's no villain. Mm -hmm. There was no like, there's no, was, everyone wanted this thing to work. The owner wanted it to work because he had owner financed the deal. The new owners wanted it to work because they bought it and they, they obviously wanted a return on it. Uh, everyone wanted it to work and still for some reason it didn't. And just watching it, a year and a half is, is long and short at the same time, but just watching it die day after day. We went from 13 employees down to two and a half working from home. Uh, we went from having an office and just the dynamic interactions of that to working from home, not because we wanted to, but because we had to. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, even though it wasn't the, the heart and soul for me, I was still in my ministry, in my business, I it hits, it hurts, right? A, a lot of times as founders, when we go through difficult times, 
we recognize that it's challenging for us. What we don't realize is the impact it has on folks throughout the organization, right? I was the lowest man on the totem pole and I actually had stomach ulcers because of what was going on. And and so I learned more in a year and a half than I did when I actually went back to business school about a, a decade later. And, and it's in those points of pain. It's one of those things, and you, you recognize this, there are events that we go through in life that we would never wish for, right? If I had the opportunity to choose it again, I'd be like, oh, yeah, I don't think I want that. But we would never give them up either. Mm-hmm. And like What I gained and what I learned from that, so much of what made us a success the second time around, that overnight success. We we built a company to $10 million in in a in a space where you don't do that. And in a relatively short period of time, it wasn't because we knew what to do. It wasn't because it was all rosy. It was because we saw the thing just fall apart. And it's moments like that, it's seasons like that, that when you're right in the middle of it, it's like, what is going on? Like, how could this ever turn around? The really cool thing about the Lord is He can turn anything around that He wants to. And even when the end of that, you stop the clock, and this was August of 2000, August of 2008, you stop the clock there and it looks like it's just catastrophic failure. Their existing business was hurting. Our business was about to shut down. Uh, founder was trying to f- scramble and figure out what he was going to do because payments weren't coming because the thing wasn't working. And just you stop the clock there, right? And it's just miserable all around. Fortunately, the Lord can take anything and he can turn it around. He can take anything even when it dies and build something beautiful out of the ashes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things that I, I try to remind people all of the time and remind myself, quite frankly, is our life is a film strip, not a photograph. And and any snapshot of time, whether it's at the peak of the mountain and everything is rosy or whether it's down in the valley and everything is dark. Yeah, those are just photographs. That's a moment in time. Your life continues to move if you do. (laughs) And now that doesn't mean it always gets better right away, but it means that there's another moment coming down the road. There's a different thing coming down the road. And of course, that's both exciting and terrifying all at the same time. Uh, And when you're in the business world, a a, a founder or or owner, or even just somebody who's in leadership in a company, I think it hits us in a different way because a lot of times there, it's not only you, now you have other people who are on the line as well. And and it starts to fall on, on our shoulders. Can you talk a little bit about that feeling and you observed it from the outside that time and then you've lived through it yourself as well of of being that founder being that leader that person that steps forward and says i'm going to do this thing and that weight that that comes from that yeah it's really interesting because like you said have this from really three distinct vantage points so the first time outsider right just watching it happen from the front line uh and really not being able to do a whole lot about it, uh, that was pretty tough. Second time around, uh, because of the nature of how we co-founded, we relaunched this thing, it was still his business and I was a an owner with him. And just with the nature of that, he was CEO, I was COO, and, and for probably the first five years, uh, I wouldn't have really called myself a founder. 
I, I didn't really recognize that. I was just like, I, we didn't have time to think about that. Let's just get it done. And so there were a number of uh, things and challenges that there that happened that a lot of founders do. But then the third piece of it was when I stepped into the CEO role, when he stepped out of that role and pursuing other interests, I stepped into that. Wow. It was, it was such a marked change. And I, st- I still remember, like, I used to be one of the team, right? And even though I still had relationships with them, many of them were you know, some of my best friends, there was this difference and this distance between me and my team inside the organization. And it put a lot of pressure on me to, to at first, just to feel like I had to figure everything out, right? Like, there's something more that was needed of me, some kind of, I had to get my magic eight ball a little shinier, a little faster, right? Uh, and then the second thing that it did was it drove me to start looking out outside for help, right? It, and before that, we had really been like, if we can't figure it out, nobody can. Uh, it was this idea of we we had created an industry. There wasn't like a whole, there wasn't an industry association that mattered to us. Uh, there weren't other people that had been down that road uh, in our specific industry. And so I interpreted that in my young, dumb mind as no one's ever done any of this before. And, and so we just ran by ourselves, And as I stepped in, we started to hit some pretty challenging times just based on the stage we were in as an organization. And I had no context for it. And I felt like uh, if we had looked back, I know how to get to where we are right now. Right? I, I know what we did to get here. I know it didn't work. I know the map behind me. I have no idea what's in front of me. And I have stepped in it enough times to know that I don't know what's in front of me. And, and that's, there's some excitement to that. If I'm honest, there's some, there's a mm-hmm. piece of the entrepreneurial heart that loves that kind of map making, walking off the face of the map, but it gets old. <laughs> it gets really old, especially when it stops working, right? Especially when your feet keep getting wet. That's just, it's not that fun. And so what was happening is, I kept, we kept going down this strategy or this way of managing my managers or this, whatever it was, and they just didn't work, right? Even the ones that worked in the past didn't work very well. So we hired a couple of of coaches and consultants in different areas of expertise to come in and help us out from marketing to recruiting to generic coaching. And to be frank with you, I lost more money following the advice of well-intentioned coaches, wonderful people, right? Well-intentioned coaches. Then I lost in the whole rest of my time as, as a founder. They told us to do some things. They confirmed some of the things that we wanted to do and sent us even faster in the wrong direction. And I'm not talking about the fees of coaches. I'm talking about like the $800,000 of sunk costs because we followed a strategy that just was doomed from the outset. And and, and when that happens, right? And a lot of founders will, will relate to this because I've found now that a lot of founders have actually had this experience where they've had a bad coach. They've had that desperation of we need help. They've gotten help and it's not worked. Mm-hmm. And then what's left, and, and this was really the hardest point for me as a founder, my hardest point in my business career was when I couldn't figure it out, when the coaches that I hired who's supposed to be really good at this couldn't figure it out, what's left, right? I, I, I'd never felt more isolated than I did in, in those moments. And we were just sitting there scratching our heads. What do we do now? 
And and fast forward a little bit, a happenstance, I came across two gentlemen who have absolutely transformed both my business and my life. The first one was a friend introduced me to uh, a gentleman nearby. And he was actually episode four, I think, on my podcast. His name is Robert Mallon. And, and he's just a the quintessential coach. He's, and I remember the first time I sat down with him, I told him, I said, Hey, I know what's behind me. I don't know what's in front of me. And I need someone who can help me do that. And he's, I think I can do that for you. And he did, right? He helped me to start to see and showed me what a good coach looks like. Someone Mm -hmm. who wasn't trying to push an agenda, someone who wasn't trying to cram me into a tool, right? right? But someone who could hear where I was and get me thinking differently about where I was going right. and how I was doing it. And then the second one was, I was listening to a podcast like this, this is why I love doing podcasts, because I always tell folks a podcast genuinely changed my life. And I heard a guy with a funny Irish accent who's now a dear friend and colleague of mine, but he was talking about this idea of business life cycle stages. Now, I, when I say that phrase, I almost fall asleep right now, but <laughs> it, it actually... It, as he was talking about these stages, he just has a way of articulating it that was like, is there a camera in my office? Like, how does he know all of this about my business? And what I realized was the reason why some of these things that had worked so well in the past weren't working anymore is because our business had changed stages. You're, you're a different and stage, we yeah. had to change as a leadership team. And much like the founder's journey that I help folks through now, there was nothing to demarcate that had happened. It wasn't like we hit a certain dollar amount and so we knew it was going to change or we hit a certain head count or it's just this thing that kind of creeps up on you behind the scenes. And if you don't know what to look for, you don't see it coming. And once I understood that the things that we were doing weren't working because of the stage we were in. I, I did the poor man's implementation, if you will. He had, in the back of his book, he has, if you're in this stage, you want to get to this stage, here's how to do it. And we took that seriously. We walked through, there were five simple but hard to do steps, simple to understand, hard to execute. And we just, we committed to walking through those as a team. We tripled our bottom line in a single year. It grew again by five percentage points the next year and again by five percentage points after that while we were growing our top line as well. So it's just this just this tr- dramatic transformation. And I, I finally found that's what coaching and consulting are supposed to do. And it was transformative for me. Yeah, a couple of things uh, that jumped out to me as you were sharing that is one is actually, and you touched on it right there at the end, there's a difference between a coach and a consultant. And and it's not that one is good and the other is bad. That's to be clear. It's they're both valuable. They're just different. <laughs> and often a consultant will call themselves a coach, but they're actually not. They're a consultant. And it's that mislabeling of it that can cause the confusion and the problem, I think, for a lot of us. Because my definition, and, and it's an oversimplification, as all definitions are, is consultants come in when you have a very specific problem and they have a very specific solution and their job is to help you implement their solution to your problem <laughs> which is great as long as you can clearly articulate what your problem is and their solution truly matches up with your problem it's very useful if i need to run facebook ads i don't need somebody asking me about the philosophy of facebook ads i just need someone to help me implement facebook ads <laughs> that's what i want to do but where a coach, like you said, helps you change the mindset or the way you're thinking about it or the way you're viewing things, helps uncover blind spots, 
often by not giving you a solution, <laughs> but rather working with you and holding you accountable to doing the things that, like you said, are often simple. At least I can explain it to you simply, but now to implement it is actually very difficult and you need that accountability and you need that time and you need that space to be able to do that. Yeah. Um, and again, both valuable, both good. So don't, please don't at me if you're one or the other. <laughs> you know? I, and I couldn't agree more. I, I think each modality has has a, a greater impact at different stages. I Absolutely. think the number one thing, this is what we did wrong. We had not built the skill of hiring the right people. People. We had built the skill for hiring the right employees, but we didn't translate that in our mind to understanding what we needed there. And yeah. one of the things that uh, I talk with folks a lot, and I actually talk with a lot of coaches when I'm working with them, is you've got to recognize, if you're a consultant, you have to recognize what stage your consulting actually does its best work in. Right. Because what happens, what we did was we were taking the strategies of stage two, which we call fun, and we were trying to do more and more of them in stage three. But it doesn't work anymore. Doesn't and when anymore. it didn't work, we figured, oh, we must just need to upgrade our strategies from stage two to be better versions of those same strategies. Let's or do, go or do more of help it. us we, do that, right? Yeah. And we do this all the time as founders is we say we want to get to the next level. But when you look at how we try to do that, it's by doing more of what it is at this level. Does that make sense? We start mm -hmm, bumping mm -hmm, up mm -hmm. against these barriers. We, we intuitively recognize it, but all we know to do is just take the hammer we've been using for the last time and just keep beating it instead of picking up a yeah. saw. Exactly. Yeah. And so the thing that you have to do, you have to recognize that, yes, the coach has a role in this. The consultant has a role in this. They need to make sure that they're finding the right people at the right stage. But as founders, we also have a responsibility of making sure that we're hiring the people that will get us to where we need to go, as opposed to just reinforcing what we've done. in What the you're past. already done. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree wholeheartedly. And we'll talk a little bit more about the founder's journey and, and what y'all do in a moment. But I want to circle back and touch on something. You know, earlier, you mentioned a couple of times faith and God can take things and turn them around and that sort of thing. Can you talk a little bit about how your faith journey, because this is what I like to highlight for people, how your faith journey intersected with your business journey and your life journey? Because there's usually a feedback between those. It's not always obvious. Yeah. I have had to, it was forced on me because <laughs> the name of this company was Start Church. And, and so a lot of the organizations we started early on were churches, then a lot of them were ministries, then a lot of them were nonprofits, and then a lot of them were businesses, the progression. But because of that, there was a faith component to how we did business and who we did business for. We had to deal with the intersection of faith and work at least I did, basically my entire career. It was just the environment that we were in. And, and you get all kinds of stuff, right? You see the underbelly of how churches function. They are people too. Pastors are people too. Churches are organizations. They're just as screwed up as yours and mine. And, Sometimes and so even you, more. <laughs> yeah, you see a lot of that. And you just got to have to wrestle through that. Like when you see a pastor, like when you have a pastor cuss you out, like that's a new experience. And is that appropriate? No. Is that a, a biblical model of pastoring? No. But they're people, right? And we were dealing with them oftentimes in 
very difficult circumstances. So learning to have grace on that. And, and one of the things that forces you to do is recognize that they're not independent worlds. We want to do that. We want to separate our pastors from us. We want to put them in this separate world so that we can hold them to a different standard than we hold ourselves. Mm-hmm. And we want to go do our work and not have the pastor or God interfere with that. And then we want to come and give a piece of it back to him. And it just doesn't work this way. And even in that environment, I was still getting it really wrong. So a friend of mine, he called me out on this. It was like, it was actually not even a friend. It was the first time we ever sat down and, and had, we had a cup of coffee together. And he totally calls me out. Yeah. It's, and he was right. And he said, he drew two boxes, one inside of the other, a teeny little box and then a big box. And he said, uh, listening to you, I hear you saying, this is my life, the big box, and this is God right in the center of it. And what I think God wants you to do is say, this is my life, this little box in the center of it, and this is God, the whole of the outside. And he nailed me, just absolutely nailed me. And that paradigm shift for me of everything that I do is in him, right? There's nothing that is separate from him in terms of whether he has a will and a plan for it. I can separate myself from, I can go out of that. I can push against it. We've seen those stories in the Bible, but uh, yeah. So all that to say, that was a big paradigm shift for me. The second aspect of it is this idea of, are you a Christian company or are you a company of Christians? Mm. Are you a Christian company or are you a company of Christians? Those are two very different things. And and I see this a lot in businesses that are just wrestling with attention. Why are we here, right? Are we here to produce great goods, to produce income for our folks and do it? Are we here to be a Christian organization? Now, no organizations are going to go to, to heaven, right? That, that doesn't work that way. So there's no such thing as a Christian company, but you have to decide. And neither one is right or wrong. Both can be abused right? If you're going to go in and you're going to start your meetings with prayer, and then you're going to ream out people during the rest of the meeting, it doesn't work, right? There's there's something you have to deal with there. It's usually, usually like I always tell, and this happens in churches a lot, where they use prayer as, as basically holy gossip. It's so like during the prayer, it's like, and help Susie with the affair that she's having. It's like, Wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's no, that, that's not what prayer is for. So let's use it the right way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And now I think the hardest part of this, if we boil it down just personally, what it looks like, and, and this ties into what we were talking about earlier, when you go through these seasons of difficulty in particular, right, the gaps in between, the 40 years of Moses in the desert, right, the that space in between where it's, this is what God has promised me, right? This is what he's called me to do. And this over here is my current reality, and they don't match. What makes that so hard in the business world is that you, as a business, you have to do something, right? Mm-hmm. That to, you can't just sit and wait. Uh, you have to take a step forward. You have to move. And so how do you move without the clarity uh, of what the Lord's called you to do? Because he doesn't always give it. At least that's been my experience, right? Sometimes he calls us to just make a choice and, and do it. So you have to maintain this posture of open hands, right? Lord, do whatever you want with it. If you don't want this business to exist tomorrow, then it doesn't exist tomorrow. It's yours. 
And then the, the flip side of it, and where I've been on multiple occasions, I don't want this business to exist. I'm done. I'm out, but you do. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show up again tomorrow. I'm going to do it again. And again, just continuing to step forward, trusting our values, trusting our relationship with the Lord, trusting in His goodness and His plan, and knowing that, like you said, it's not, doesn't, every snapshot's not perfect. But the movie, right, it, the ending of the story, which may happen on this side of eternity and it may not, right? Mm-hmm. And more oftentimes it does not, but it's going to be beautiful. Right. And that we don't always see, it, even in the moment, like you mentioned earlier, going through the hard moments of the closing, and yet out of that came something good that you would never have even predicted was the good that would come from it you're not wise enough or see enough to come out of it and go, oh, that's what I'm learning from this until 10 years later, you look back on it and go, oh, that's what I learned from that. <laughs> it's like, yep. that, that's a, that was a blessing. I just didn't see it at the time. So talk a little bit about why you talk to founders. What, why is that the area of focus for you? Yeah. Founders, such a cool group of people. One, they're just really dynamic, right? I, I love the at least 50% ADHD quality of any, it's just, it's, we're just all over the map. I, I love it. I love the dynamism of it. I, and I love the impact that founders make, right? That there are very few groups that, that one can make an immediate impact and change the world, right? At the same time, it's just, it's a really special special thing. A lot of times with founders, their organizations, even if they're large, are still dynamic and nimble enough that they that you can go in and you can actually impact change, like something actually moves. Whereas more mature organizations, there may be you know 50,000 people in the company, may feel like we can impact 50,000 people, but it's going to take you about 50,000 years to get through all the layers of bureaucracy to get there. So I, just personally, I love that aspect of it. Professionally, one of the reasons why is as founders, these stages, this journey that we go through is largely hidden, right? And what do I mean by that? So let's take the leadership journey of a typical employee. Uh, You start the front line right out of college. You do a good job. They promote you to manager. Now, whether they should have done that or not is another conversation, but you you get a new title and with it, there's a new set of challenges, right? I I have to start to learn to have success through others. I got to learn to manage others. Managing yourself and managing others are two different skill sets. Your own productivity is no precursor to being able to make others productive. And, but it makes sense. It's still hard, right? Lots of people struggle with this transition. Lots of them don't even make it, but they have the advantage of, of a position change to at least say that something has changed, right? They have the advantage of a title change. They, and hopefully they got the advantage of a little bit of pay to go with it. You take that same transition happens for founders, right? You start off as solopreneur. You, you start to have success. You, you, I got more work than I can do. I'm going to bring in a couple of employees. And somewhere around the point where you've hired a handful of employees, the game shifts and your primary function isn't just doing your job anymore, right? Your primary function is almost equally split between doing your job which is harder now because you've got to sell enough for, to feed everybody and making sure everyone else does their job. And it's a different skill set. But again, does your title change? Have you ever seen a, a founder say, I went from solopreneur to manager, right? 
and, and celebrate it? Never, right? Have you ever seen a founder who started their company to become a manager of a handful of people? Mm-hmm. No, yeah. right? It's just, it's not what we're, we're trying to do. It's not what we're meant to do. And you have someone who's just not naturally wired or seeking a management role who by virtue of their success as that solopreneur, their success early on has been thrust into that role, but there's nothing to indicate that it has changed. And so it, it, it makes it really hard to recognize, ah, I do need this new skill set right now. Or even more importantly, I do have to let go of this skill set that I used to use. Right. Or I have to stop spending so much time on A because now B is important. Yeah. And sometimes that's really hard because A turns out to be something that they really, it, it's the thing that they love so much that got them into it in the first place. Yeah. And now they feel like they're losing their, losing the, their love to to grow the thing that they love, which is yeah. a really weird. Uh, it's dynamic. so true. It's the emotional side of, of something I call the star player paradox, which is basically that the more success you have as a star player, the more success you have, let's say you're a consultant, the better you are as a consultant, let's say you cut hair, the better you are at cutting hair, it, the harder it is to have success through others cutting hair. Mm-hmm. Because so because you're so adept at it that one, the gap between you and everybody else can feel insurmountable, right? How many founders have you talked to? No one else can do it like I can. Yeah, yeah. I'm the uh, only one. And, I, I can't delegate that. I'm the only yeah, one that yeah, can yeah. do that. Uh, and and to an extent, may, maybe they can't do it the way that you can. Now that's not nearly half as true as we think it is, but the gap feels really big. And your autopilot is going to drive you back to jumping in and just doing it, right? And this happens at every single stage, but it's particularly prominent in that shift from what I call stage two, which is the startup entrepreneur or the star player on the field to stage three, which is the captain on the field. Mm-hmm. Or you got to step into that captain's role where it's not just about you doing your job. In fact, it, it becomes mostly about orienting everyone else to do it, but you still have your job to do, right? That's what makes it so hard. And it's why a lot of leadership books in the stage are not helpful because they're written for folks who are further down down their journey and they have time, right? And they have a bigger return on coaching, if you will. And and, and so there's just this messy space in between and, and a whole lot of founders get stuck there. And one of the things I almost, it's not even a joke, it's, this is real. You're in this stage, if you wake up, more often than not, wondering what's wrong with these people, <laughs> and and it's just because again, uh, other folks are not founders. If they would be, if they were, they'd go and do it. So they're they not going to be like you. They're not going to think like you. They're not going to make decisions like you. They're not going to show ownership like you do. But how how do you manage them effectively? And and that's hard to do when you think oh, I'll just go do it myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, and I I work with small business owners a lot. And it's always interesting because I see the same thing in that. And like you said, it's not necessarily a particular, oh, you may, you went from making 500000 to making 800000 so you're going to hit this challenge. But it's more of a, at some point, you start reaching this level where it's, okay, now you've got a new set of problems to solve. So you're in a different place. You've got to, what, what got you there won't get you to the next place. Yeah. <laughs> You need a new map. You need a new set of skills. You need something else to be able to inject or else and you'll fall out or and, die. And, yeah. And Marshall Goldsmith did wonders for all of us in helping. Like he got that phrase out there. 
and it's great and it's true, but when does it become true, right? That, and what the are the part. things that did work, right? And which are the ones that aren't going to work anymore? Right. And so, again, if you're an employee, uh, it, it's easy to say, okay, hey, I've got a new title. Let's stop and think, what are the things that got me here? Now, what are the things that are going to get me there? But for founders, when do you do that? It's a completely right? different thing. Yeah. yeah. And the other part of it is it's not always true, right? If you're in true. a stage, you're at the beginning part of that stage, then continuing to do what you've started doing for that stage, you can actually continue to grow that way. You don't have to change tactics until it's time to change tactics. Right. right. So kind of the heart and passion and drive and what I hope folks get out of the book, because I outline all seven of these stages that we go through, is to give you everyone a simple map, the whole map, so that you can look at the map and say, hey, I'm here, right? right. There's a, a story I like to tell. I was seven, eight, nine, I don't know. I was a young kid back when we used to have malls that people would go to that were inside, not outside. For some reason, all the malls are outside now. But uh, I was in one of these malls. I want to go to Foot Locker. My mom wants to go to JCPenney. So we make this grand bargain. I'll go to Foot Locker and then I'll go meet her at JCPenney. Uh, so all is right in the world. I go into Foot Locker. I'm checking out some Jordans or something. I don't know what I was looking at. But uh, eventually, you know, I've seen enough of shoes. It's not the most exciting store. It's better than JCPenney. And I realize, hey, it's time to go to JCPenney. And this dread comes over me because I realize I have no idea where JCPenney is. There's none whatsoever. My mom probably told me and I wasn't listening, but I, I have no idea where to go. And I'm just looking out around and you remember those big kind of triangle pylons that they used to have? And on one side of those, there was what? It was a map, map. right? And I remember looking up at that map and I remember the sense of relief when I finally found that little dot, that little marker on the map that says, you are here. Right before you can ever start to think about how you're going to get to where you're going, you have to know where you are right now. Mm -hmm. And that's how you can determine, is what got me here going to get me there? Or do, do, is it time to change? And if it's time to change, you can know specifically how to change once you know where you are. Right, right. And again, to the point, because you hear a lot out there that says, when you move from $500,000 in revenue to $1 million in revenue, you've hit a transition point. And it's, yeah, that that's, it's not like that for every industry and in every situation for every, it. You hear these rules of thumb and, and they came about because there's some truth to them because it's happened that way sometimes, but it also depends on what kind of business you're building and all of these other factors that I think a lot of times we don't pay attention to, we're looking at just something like revenue as the one indicator that I need to go to a new stage. And it's, no, it's not that simple. <laughs> no, revenue is a terrible indicator. I mean, I'll <laughs> yeah. go in and work with companies that are doing a hundred million dollars and, and we will have to solve the same problems of other companies that are deal that are making $10 million. Right. And I understand why it's there. It's an easy number to grab hold of. It's a loose proxy to some of the challenges that we're going to have. But it's why we go to so much extent using Les's book, Predictable Success, or my book, The Founder's Evolution, where we give folks the ability to diagnose what stage they're in organizationally and individually without having to rely on numbers that change all the time. And, and so it's just, again, what we're going for in, in our work is helping teams and individuals to understand this is where we are right now. Right. Once you know where you are, 
you can then start to trace the path between where you are and where you want to go. Right. And I think you just dropped an important nugget that I think gets lost a lot of times, which was not only where is your company, but where are you? <laughs> because as the leader, as the founder, as the person yep. that's putting things, you know, we, John Maxwell puts it as you're the lid of your business. At, at some point, your growth limits the growth of your business and you need to be aware of that and figure out what can I do to build a team, to do other things that create, remove some of those limitations. And what does that look like? And how do I do it? And what skills do whole nother set of questions open up? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that was what I found is I'm working through companies. I'm helping them to transition the organization from one stage to another. I'm seeing some do the work and move and some do the work and not move. And so, well, how do you explain that? what's going on here. And what I found the factor was, has the founder or the owner or the CEO or the the senior pastor, we call them most senior executive, but typically for me, it's founders. Mm-hmm. And have they made the changes that they need to make personally? Because if you don't, the rest is window dressing. And it's just going to fall apart or at worst, if you if everyone else changes and you don't, mm. you're setting the thing up to cave in on itself, and that's the fastest way to lose some of your best leaders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that it's the the paradox of being killed by success. And I, I'm sure you've seen that happen as well. I've seen yes, a company can close down because of quote failures, but I've also seen companies close down because of success, which is yep. ironic and strange, but. It does. So if you had to share a nugget with the founders out there that are listening, something that they should do, top tip, what would you put as the number one thing that founders really need to to do, to hear, to understand, to move forward? Yeah. And we've said this before, but just to make sure that's super clear, I, I don't think there is one thing right? The only one thing is that there are at least seven things and you've got to know which one to pick. It's a little bit of, by by believing that there are different stages, what I'm saying is at each one of those stages, there is a one thing that is most important for that stage. Knowing that, then the one thing becomes figure out what stage you're in so that you can figure out what the one thing for that stage is. Mm -hmm. Once you know what stage you're in, once you know what you need to do, you may find it's not actually as hard as you think, right? Or you may find it's a lot harder than I think. It looks nothing like what it has in the past. And from there, you can say to a coach, hey, I'm trying to get from here to here. Can you help me on that stage of the journey? And you're far more likely to get far better expertise. You're far more likely to find the right coach for the right time than you are by just saying, hey, I, I, I need to be better, right? What does that mean? Or I need to get to the next level. What does that really mean as well? Mm-hmm. So I've got a few questions that I like to ask all of my guests. But before I do that, is there anything else about your book, The Founder's Evolution, or the work that you do that you'd like to share with the, the listener? Yeah, there's one thing, and this really is, it really is the most important thing. And that is, once you've found what stage you're in, two things happen. One, you get the clarity of this is what I need to do in this stage. But with that clarity comes the clarity of where you aren't right now. And and, and so what happens is, it's just foggy. We're just fumbling around and it's just hard to see. 
once we get that fog out of the way and you see the next mountain, one of the temptations is to put our joy on hold until we reach that next mountain. Mm. And so the most important thing, the the thing that I, I want nobody to miss is that joy is not found in the destination. There is no stage that you're going to reach that is going to, that's got the corner on joy, right? There is no one stage because every stage has something behind it. And if you wait until the very last stage, then you've lost pretty much your whole life. Yeah. And, and you've put joy on hold. So joy is not found in a destination. It's found in the journey. And that sounds wonderful, but it's like, it's really hard right now. And, and even in the hard seasons, there is something very specific. I'm, this isn't a soft thing. There's something very specific that can bring you joy in this stage that if I ask you three, four, five stages later, I wish I had that again, or I wish I had known what I had then. And so in the book, one of the things that I do is highlight at the end of every chapter, I end with, here's the specific thing that you can take joy in right now. Do mm. not miss this. I've seen so many people create so much success, and some of them do it really fast, some of them do it really slow, and all of them, when they have a moment of sobriety sitting on you know the other side of success, they realize it looks just like it used to, right? Organizations don't get b- better, they get bigger, right? And so what we want to do is say, hey, I'm going, I know what stage I'm in, maybe I don't want to be in this stage for long, but I'm not going to sacrifice my joy in the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I run things through the brand inspired stewardship and and stewardship is one of those things that like leadership and other words I've discovered over the years, a lot of people hear it and hear different things when they hear it. So when you think of the word stewardship, what does it mean to you? Yeah, stewardship for me is that the parable of the talents is the best one. It's that, hey, whatever we're given Our job is to put it to the best use that we possibly can. My job is to not be given something else, right? My job is to not be given more or less. My job is to take what I've been given and do the absolute best that I can with it unto the Lord, right? And the second piece of it is this is all his. It's not mine. Now, he takes great care of us. He takes joy in our joy. And so this isn't like a rote you have to be miserable unto the Lord. There's joy and fullness of joy in his presence. I would say the second part of stewardship is this thing, this story is not about me. This company is not about me. My bank account's not about me. It's about what he's doing in my life. Mm. So this is my favorite question that I like to ask everybody. Imagine for a moment that I invented this magic machine. And with the machine, I could pluck you from where you are today and transport you into the future, maybe 150, 250 years. But through the power of this machine, you were able to look back and see your entire life and see all of the connections, all of the ripples, all of the impacts you've left behind. What impact do you hope you've left in the world? I want to restore the nobility of work. I think people my age and younger tend to have a very negative view of work, right? It's a necessary evil. And for me, and I think when you look at a biblical definition of work, it, there is a nobility in our effort. There's a nobility in, in, in doing hard things and accomplishing them. And there's a calling in that. And so I'd love to see that my work in some small little way helps more people to recognize the nobility of even the most mundane roles and finding the Lord in their work as opposed to waiting for their work to be done to talk to Him. Mm. 
So what's coming next? What's on the roadmap as you kick off uh, this year? <laughs> this year is all about me continuing to embrace. I'm in stage two, that startup entrepreneur. I've got a couple of people around me and I'm intentionally staying in that mode as long as I can. A big part of what we're doing this year is promoting the book. It just came out in the fall of last year. And so we're just trying to help more folks find it, building more resources around it. We've got an assessment that's coming out. We've got some training that's coming. So really excited. My group of coaches are running with it as well. And it's just neat to see it you know, out in the world finally. So we want to take that as deep and far as we can and really impact the lives, both of the founders that we serve and the organizations that they lead. So you can find out more about Scott Ritzheimer and Scale Architects, his business over at scalearchitects.com. Of course, I'll have a link to that over in the show note as well. Scott, is there anything else you'd like to share with the listener? Absolutely. The one thing that I would tell anyone is like, where do I go next? Uh, either I got to know what stage I'm in or I just feel stuck. I don't even know how to think about these stages. We made the book free for everyone. And so at scalearchitects.com, you can either click the free book or there'll be a little pop-up that comes up, anything that you want. But go to that website, click on the free book and get a copy of it today. The big promise behind the book, just real nuts and bolts, practical way. If you read the book, you find out what stage you're in and you go and look at the tasks that you have coming up in the next two weeks, you'll be able to save about 10 hours on things that you don't need to be doing anymore in the stage that you're in. So you spend about, it's a very short read. And so you spend an hour or so on the read, it'll save you 10 hours in the first week. That's a 10x return on time. It's hard to get anywhere else. So get at scalearchitects.com. And, and yeah, we'd love to hear your feedback on it. So once you read it, send me an email. I'd love to hear from you. Awesome. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to the Inspired Stewardship Podcast. As a subscriber and listener, we challenge you to not just sit back and passively listen, but act on what you've heard and find a way to live your calling. If you enjoyed this episode, please do us a favor. Go over to inspiredstewardship.com slash iTunes rate, all one word iTunes rate. It'll take you through how to leave a rating and review and how to make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so that you can get every episode as it comes out in your feed. Until next time, invest your time, your talent, and your treasures, develop your influence, and impact the world.